0: Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for May has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Rob McGinley Myers, he's an English instructor and an independent writer and blogger. How's it going, Rob? Great. So you have an interesting history starting, uh, your, your, your career began in radio, is that correct?
1: I guess so, yeah. I, was, um, I actually uh, went to grad school for creative writing uh, at the University of Minnesota, and while I was there, we got this mysterious email asking for, well, and I, which I guess was sent to all the colleges and grad schools in the area, asking for people who wanted to contribute to uh, this radio show. Called the Writer's Almanac, which um, a lot of people listen to public radio might be familiar with. It's this Garrison Keillor thing where he reads a poem and talks about writers who were born on that day. And I applied for the job, uh, which was freelance at first, and I and I got it. And then I slowly kind of worked my way up and became the producer of the show
0: of uh, the Writer's Almanac.
1: That's right. And
0: and was that uh, was that a good starting point for you? Were you happy there?
1: Well, uh, it was interesting because, um, I had listened to the show as a fan, uh, when I first moved out to Minnesota before I went to grad school. And at the time I, you know, was kind of an aspiring writer and the stories that he told about writers were always these kind of inspirational stories of, you know, the, the guy who had no money and could barely pay his rent and then finally wrote the masterpiece that made him, you know, uh, famous. And, uh, so when I got the job, uh, I was still kind of in that mode of, you know, wanting to be a a professional writer. And I was writing these stories about writers becoming professional writers. So it was this strange, uh, synthesis of, you know, what I wanted and what I was doing. Um, and I, the thing I loved about it was that I found all of these interesting facts about the world. And I was just, uh, you know, I was writing, I was getting paid to write and it was pretty exciting. Um, but, uh. Yeah.
0: So, w- what happened? Wh- where did your career go after your initial start uh, writing for the Writer's Almanac?
1: Well, the thing about the show was that I was just writing scripts. So, basically, I was doing the exact same thing every week. I would just I would sit down with uh, Garrison, um, who's kind of an interesting character. Um, I would sit at his office and uh, give him a list of things that I could write about. And he would go over the list and tell me what he thought was interesting. And at first it was pretty easy to come up with that list but after I'd been there for a few, couple of years I was you know writing about the same things over and over again because the we just we were tied to the calendar and whatever historical events or people were born on that day sure and uh so I had to start coming up with new angles and new you know items that we never covered before and after a while it started to feel like I was scraping the barrel and I didn't know what I was going to write about the next time that date came around and which was kind of stressful, and I also was getting interested in radio as kind of an art form and like making actual sort of documentary radio stories, and I sold a couple of those to a show called weekend america and uh, and I thought that 's what I want to do. I want to go into real radio, not just script writing,
0: okay, so did you
1: I did well, yeah, so I sold these stories to this show Weekend America, and then a job opened up on a different radio show. which at the time was called Speaking of Faith. uh, I remember that show. Yeah, which has since turned into a show called On Being. Yeah. Um, And they had a job opening, and uh, I applied for that, and I got that job. And I thought it was going to be the perfect job for me because it was kind of going to teach me all the things about radio that I didn't know yet. I mean, I was going to be doing some writing and research, but I was also going to be booking guests and recording audio and editing audio. Wow, that's like Um, a jack-of-all-trades job. Exactly. So I thought it was going to be perfect, and then it turned out that it actually was not the perfect job at all.
0: Well, when you're expected to do everything like that, I would think it, it generates, I actually should say, I know from experience that it generates a lot of anxiety.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, especially for me, because it didn't occur to me at the time, but I had sort of set my life up as a person who... Uh, wanted to focus on one project at a time and just really go deep on that project. I mean, I kept, I went to a college, uh, Colorado College, where you only take one class at a time, and you just do that one class for three and a half weeks, and then you go on to your next class. Wow, that would be nice. Yeah, which was perfect for me. And then uh, my job at Writers Almanac, I just was you know writing. That's all I had to do. And then moving over to this other job, I was excited to learn stuff, but at the same time. I'd never really built up kind of multitasking muscles uh, that you need to be in that sort of position. Um, And it was kind of a baptism by fire. I mean, uh, keeping that many balls in the air was just something I'd never learned how to do. And so it was incredibly difficult. Do you think – kind of as an
0: aside, do you think that putting a person in that position is – ultimately productive enough to make it less expensive than hiring multiple people to do the job?
1: Well, I mean, I think there are people who can do that kind of position. But what's interesting is I think the kind of person who's good at that sort of thing tends not to be someone who's high on kind of like a creativity scale. I've heard this from um, people who like study psychology that when someone scores pretty high – on, you know, when they do certain personality tests, if somebody scores pretty high in creativity, they tend not to score very high on, uh, kind of being detail oriented. Those huh. two things tend to be the opposite, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I was going into that job as someone who'd proven that I ha- was very creative because I'd, you know, been successful with Garrison Keeler for so long, but I did not have those detail oriented skills. And so they actually were hiring the wrong person. Um, that what they needed to hire was someone who was highly detail-oriented, uh, and what they got was someone who was highly creative, and it was just not a very, a very good match. Okay.
0: So what, what were the biggest sources of anxiety for you then and even
1: even now? Well, yeah, so it was interesting. Um, not, not being detail-oriented, there were, there were a couple aspects of the job that uh, I, I found incredibly uh, stressful, and one of them was email. Um, we were in this office environment where we often communicated by email, even though we all sat within about 10 <laughs> yards of each other. And the the messages being communicated between staff members were often hard to read. Like sometimes the boss would be unhappy about something. And so she would send an email to everybody about the thing that she was unhappy about. Um, and so that would sort of like filter down into all of our subconscious, you know, that she wasn't happy And then uh, we were also dealing with listener email. And uh, for anybody who's, I mean, you probably have this experience, uh, you know, getting listener email, but we would get a combination of, you know, people writing to us saying that like our show had changed their life and, um, you know, they, they were on the verge of suicide practically and we had kind of turned their life around. And then at the same time, we'd get emails from people who were just furious at us about, you know, some... The fact that we'd said that, you know, people from, uh, you know, Muslim religions are good, you know, like people would be super angry at us or even just little factual errors. I mean, people who listen to public radio are obsessed with facts (laughs) and they were constantly writing in with corrections. And my job was to go through listener email and figure out which ones are worth responding to and in what ways are they worth responding to and which ones can I respond to and which ones do I need to forward to my boss to respond to? And that part of my job was supposed to be this kind of minor element of my job. But it turned out that it was because I left my email open all day and because I was sort of expected to do that, it was like these these constant little interruptions of my thought process and interruptions that weren't just, you know, like, oh, I don't need to worry about that, but like sometimes incredibly difficult things to think about you know this incredible anger coming at me and then also sometimes um you know after i'd worked on a show and i was responsible for doing the fact checking uh those corrections coming in were corrections of me you know things that sure. i maybe should have caught and so like every time a show would come out i would start to feel like oh god or you know did i make some mistake are is there going to be an army of people kind of uh f- riding on their horses towards me over the internet to tell me all the th- mistakes that I made. And uh, over time, that, that stress just kind of accumulated and accumulated to the point where um, I was constantly sort of worried about what was going to be in my inbox. It was like this, uh, this thing that I didn't want to open, even though it was my job to open, um, because I didn't know what kind of uh, bombs were going to be in sure. there.
0: Sure. <laughs> so if you think offending Muslims is bad, you should try redesigning a blog like Engadget sometime. um but uh but did you did you then or now did you develop a, a thick skin toward email or did you find a way to uh relieve some of that anxiety related to the content of the emails
1: I didn't when I was working there I never quite figured it out um I uh I mean basically what happened while I was there I mean I worked there for about a year and a half and it was also during that time that the economy was crashing. This was 2007, 2008, uh, 2009. Um, and so while I was the summer uh, that I was there was when the housing market was imploding. And we were, I mean, because I worked for a news organization, we were, we were all very plugged into that. And then uh, some other radio shows were canceled and people were getting laid off. And so it just created this atmosphere of stress for everybody. And then all the email on top of that and uh, worrying about making mistakes, I started, I developed uh, kind of terrible insomnia to the point where I was, I'd be able to go to sleep at night, but I would wake up at about 3 a.m. every morning and I couldn't get back to sleep. And I would just think about all the things that I had to do and all the things that I might need to be worried about. And it got to the point where I just had to leave. I was like, this job is just becoming corrosive to my life. Um, I need to do something completely different. And so I wound up uh, quitting that spring, um, the following spring, and then moving into teaching, which I found to be, which is where I began to kind of find some solutions to that, that stress.
0: So are you, are you saying that leaving that particular job did uh, relieve anxiety for you? What did it end up being the job that was the source of anxiety?
1: I think so. You know, I've done a lot of research into um, kind of the psychology of anxiety and depression um, because that's kind of what I was experiencing. And I remember reading an article once that compared uh, depression to like a fever. uh, And it said that uh, when... When you get a fever, often what it is is that your body is trying to rid yourself of some sort of disease, some sort of germ that's infected you, and so it raises the temperature, which kills the germ, right? And that uh, this person was comparing depression uh, to—it's like your body is shutting down everything in your life to so that you can focus on this one thing, and the one thing is the thing that needs to change. You know, there's something in your life that needs to change. And uh, you're not going to be able to focus on anything until you change that one thing. And so when I read that, I thought, oh, you know, like, maybe maybe it was just the job. Like Because once I changed the job, I felt 100 times better. But I also think if I had had some of the tools that I have now, I would have been able to manage that job a lot better. I just didn't have the tools or the skills to kind of... uh, take control of everything that felt out of control in my life at that point.
0: Yeah. I, I'd see there's, there's attraction when you're in those high pressure situations, there's this attraction to focusing on one thing. But I think like in cases like depression or, or drug addiction or anything like that, once it gets down to that one thing that actually ends up not being a good thing, you get into some really nasty cycles unless you, unless you have the power to change that one thing. I think, like, that kind of single-minded focus gets really dangerous.
1: Well, exactly. Just like a fever can kill you, right? Right. If, If your fever goes too high, you will die. Right. And so, like, with depression, yes, it can often be brought on by environmental factors. And if you can change those factors, you, you know, will improve. But if you can't change those factors, then you need to mitigate, you know, you need to take medication or you need to, you know, do something to reduce the fever in a way.
0: I see, and I think I would draw a distinction between general depression and clinical depression, because I think, and and I'm not a psychologist, but right, right, um, neither am I. But it seems like in cases of clinical depression, where you are predisposed to depression, that there's not a lot in your environment that you can change. Uh, it seems like medication is uh, a more valid uh, resource in that case yeah yeah I just wanna i, I don't want anyone who's suffering from clinical depression make them feel like they're they're doing it wrong
1: right right no
0: um yeah okay, so tell me about the tools that you have now that you didn't have then
1: well, so it was interesting it was very- it was around the time that I was um leaving that job that I started to realize that uh one of the things I really loved in my life was software, and I think in a way um, software became like, cause I was coming out of this period in my life where, where I felt like everything was kind of disordered and out of control. And I, as I started to learn more about software, uh, it became this way of me to kind of take control of things. Um, so for example, uh, very soon after I left that job, I realized, you know, I don't know how to manage my to-do list. I have no, uh, I had no way of doing that because I was, you know, I was born with a pretty good memory, and so I was the kind of kid in in high school that I would just, uh, I would just remember what I had to do for my homework. I wouldn't ever write anything down, and which worked for me up to a point. But once I got into a more complicated job situation and a more complicated life situation, because you know I had kids by this point, I was having to drop them off at daycare and pick them up. I was having to keep track of you know house uh, tasks and stuff, and I just realized my life has become too complicated to just remember what I need to do. And so, like, I learned about OmniFocus uh, and started using that. And that suddenly, I mean, it just made my life feel so much more um, manageable. It made me feel like I can look at my future and know where everything is and be able to look at it in different ways, like, to give it some kind of order. Um, Other things like, uh, you know, I, I could use software like, you know, Evernote and just capture everything, um, and then make it searchable. You know, I'd always taken notes on things, um, at my old job and written them down in these yellow notebooks. And then I would never look at the yellow notebook again. Um, and suddenly there was this software where I could write it all down and then search it. And that just seemed amazing to me. I mean, it just felt like, uh, like it just felt comforting that I would have it and that it would be accessible and sort of available anywhere on whatever device that I had. Um, and yeah, go ahead. Let me ask
0: you this. How often in reality, uh, like in recent history have you searched your Evernote notes? How many times have you had to refer to them?
1: I do it a lot lately. Um, because I've gotten really good at, uh, going through my email. So, so here's an example. Um, I mean, another app more recently, uh, which I wrote about, uh, I wrote a review uh, of this app for the SweetSetup.com Dispatch, which you've talked about on a couple previous shows, Yep. um, which has the first email app that has felt me, made me feel like I'm in control of my email. And so what I do is when I go through my email, whenever I get an email that has any kind of reference material uh, that I, you know, like some job-related thing that's coming up, I will forward that email to my Evernote inbox. And then, uh, the next time that I have to refer back to that, I know that that's where it is. And I find creating habits like that has allowed me to feel much more, um, I don't know, like I just feel less anxious about where that information is because I've developed this habit of ubiquitous capture, um, and then easy searchability. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, it makes perfect sense. Like I, I find the same comfort in knowing that I can find any Anything I've ever read or or needed to reference in the past, knowing that it's just a few search keywords away. But I rarely at least with Evernote, uh I, I've rarely actually needed to go back to notes I've taken. This is different than notes I've I've archived from emails or from web pages.
1: Right. Yeah. Those, those are
0: valid reference material. I find though that if I actually write the note down, I rarely have to go back and reference it because the act of typing it or writing it already made me remember it. Right. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, I- maybe if I had to go back a couple of years, but my life has never been, my jobs have never required me to know what I knew two years ago. I only mm-hmm. need to know what's been pertinent in the last six months.
1: Yeah. You know, that's interesting because I was finding that, that I had that same issue when I was using a combination of NVALT and Notesy, that I would put tons of stuff in there. um, And because it was in there and I knew I could get back to it, I sort of wouldn't think about it again. It was almost like I was emptying my brain instead of saving it for later. Um, And I think one of the reasons why I've started using Evernote recently is because I can put more than just notes in it. And because it has both those uh those things, you know, from emails and whatnot and uh, you know, screenshots and, you know, whatever, because it could be more of an everything box, I find that more like I'm more likely to use it. Whereas with uh Notesy, I would take notes and then I wouldn't look at them because it felt like it like I was extracting it from my brain rather than, you know, keeping it for reference.
0: Well and I think that comes down to the two different types too. Like there's the notes you take in the moment. And most of the time, I think you, you probably follow the same system. If you're taking a note in the moment that's an action item that you do need to act on in the future, that's going into omnifocus. right? Right? Not necessarily right. into notes. So then you have notes that are about things in the present that you want to remember but don't have to reference. And then you have, say, a web page you came across or an email you received that you know you're going to need to reference in the future. And being able to archive those things and being able to quickly call them back up at the point that you do need them. And the easy thing about that is at the time that you know you're going to need it, you know why you're going to need it. So you can tag it. You can title it. You can file it in a notebook that makes sense for easy retrieval. The problem is like I got into – I was archiving every web page that I was interested in and that's that's how I actually managed to overload Evernote. Um, just because I, I, this was back before I had full faith that the internet would be permanent, right? Because there was a time, and I think it was more frequent back then than it is now, that pages would just disappear. You'd go back to something, and it would suddenly be a four hundred four. And yeah, it still happens, but not not at the frequency it was in like oh five, oh six. Um, and I was just, I was just grabbing instead of bookmarking. I would actually grab the entire webpage, usually as a PDF. And it would get to be such a huge pile that even if I wanted to find it, once it had been long enough that I couldn't remember the title of the post or who the email was from, it would it, it would essentially be gone because I would spend too much time digging and, and it would be easier just to figure it out all over again.
1: Yeah. I don't know if well, you ever ran into that. But. I, the, I, the thing that I do lately is um, – I. I use Pinboard, pin which I assume you're you're a Pinboard user. That
0: that was my solution as well. I started yeah. I started more intelligently uh uh bookmarking in Pinboard and then I paid for the full archive in Pinboard so that if a page did disappear, I would always be able to still get it. But I didn't have to think about it as much and the search was better and the tagging was better for me. And yeah, Pinboard has been The ultimate solution in the in the area of saving the web
1: yeah i i keep meaning to pay for the full archive i know i will use it um but somehow i just keep not getting around to doing that honestly i've Uh, used it like twice
0: in the last two (laughs) years but it's the comfort that we were talking about before knowing that it is there
1: yeah yeah well and that's the thing about software like in terms of comfort um I think for me, you know, before I switched to a Mac, I mean, it's interesting. I, I started, I switched to a Mac when I switched from my job working for Garrison Healer to my job at Speaking of Faith. And, uh, it was over the course of that first year or two of owning a Mac that I started to realize that there were all these people, all these independent developers writing software. And I, and I, whereas on windows i assume there are independent developers but i just never saw software as something that i wanted to learn more about or try right. new things like it didn't feel like that like it felt like software was something imposed on me by my job right you know here. yeah and then when i started using all this indie mac software it felt like software was almost like an like an artisanal like <laughs> art form or something um and instead of software feeling imposed on me, it was like software could enable me to do new things. Um, and I just, and all the little ways in which I could, I mean, the first example of this that I remember was very soon after I started at that, uh, speaking of faith job, uh, one of my coworkers told me about Scrivener. Um, and I'd never heard of Scrivener. This was in 2007, I think. And he was like, oh, yeah, it's this really cool. You know, I'm using it to write a book. And so I checked it out and I started, it's actually, it's, I I think I bought it at the time, but I didn't learn how to use it. And then as soon as I quit my job uh, and I had a few months off before I went into teaching, I started writing my first novel, um, which I'd written fiction in grad school. And I'd always found writing fiction to be anxiety provoking because I would I'd write something and then I'd think is that good enough maybe I should go back and revise it like I was constantly editing as I was writing and never really getting anywhere and when I used Scrivener and the way that you could break a piece of writing up into all these little pieces and then rearrange them and look at them kind of from the overview to like the microscopic view I just found that I could I could break it off into all these tiny little pieces and it became so much more manageable um and that's the thing, like that I've discovered about software in the last several years, and why I started writing about it is that it—I f- mean—it just feels like we're at this moment where software is enabling all people to do all these amazing things, and not only enabling it, but making the spaces where you create stuff feel um, like places you want to be because it's so—it's so much more. Like I'm not a very organized person, but in software, I can be organized. Does it make
0: sense? Oh, absolutely. I I think there was a point where if you really wanted to get into one of these spaces, you would find a way. But modern software, and especially in the Mac community, has enabled people – it has actually attracted people to spaces where they might not have gone to the trouble to enter before. Exactly. Uh, At what point did you find out Scrivener was made by just one guy?
1: Honestly, well, I was aware that it was one main developer, but when I heard the interview that you did with him, um, I think it was you. Yeah, I did. Uh, and, he, and he talked about uh, how he got into programming. He learned how to program in order to make that application. That was incredibly inspiring to me. Yeah, it is it is inspiring. That's exactly what I would call it. Because, I, I mean, I'm, I know almost nothing about coding. I, I, I think the most coding that I know is Markdown and but i would love to i mean i have ideas like uh y- you know i have ideas for apps but i have no idea how to make them and so hearing him say that i was like oh i should learn i should really learn how to do that that's awesome all right well i'm going to
0: take our our first sponsor break okay and then uh and then we're probably going to jump into the top 3 because i feel like your top 3 may uh tie into some of our conversation here okay maybe not looking at your top 3 i may be entirely mistaken But it's about that time anyway, so I'll tell everyone that this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Uh, For a free trial and 10% off, you can go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPRINGTIME. Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust. You can really create your own space online. Everything's drag-and-drop, so it's really easy to add content from your desktop and even rearrange elements of content within the page. Squarespace makes sure your site automatically looks great on any device because every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design. You can easily connect Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, and many more web and social services. Squarespace also has e-commerce on their platform, so if you want to set up shop, you can sell things in just a few minutes. Uh, It's incredibly easy to use, but if you do need some help, there are over 70 Squarespace employees on the customer care team based in New York City. They're available for live chat during the week, and they have super fast email support throughout the day and night. As I said earlier, you can try Squarespace for free, no credit card required. And if you decide to purchase, it starts at just $8 a month and includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. So make sure you get 10% off of that and support the show by using the offer code SPRINGTIME. Sorry, springtime. Uh, So thank you to Squarespace for supporting 5 by 5 and Systematic.
1: Can I just say that uh, when I decided to start my blog uh, this past summer, uh, I I went to Squarespace because I'd heard so many ads like this one for it, and uh, it's everything that it was cracked up to be. Um, I had this idea that I wanted a kind of a drawing of an anxious looking robot um, for my website, which is called Anxious Machine. So I had my daughter draw, I said, my daughter, my nine-year-old daughter is a pretty good artist um, and she has a unique style. So I said, can you draw me a picture of a nervous looking robot? And she (laughs) drew this picture and I scanned it and I thought, I just want, I want this in the corner of my, or at the top of my blog page. Let's see if I can figure out how to do it. And within, you know, a few hours, I had gotten my blog set up with that picture and it just looked, you know, it looked like my blog. It didn't look like anybody else's blog, you know, and so it was amazing.
0: It is perfect, by the way. The robot is. Oh, thank you. Tell tell us a little bit about your blog. When did this start?
1: Well, you know, I'd been reading blogs, you know, in this period when I was learning about software, I was, of course, starting to read all these technology blogs and um, it occurred to me that. I mean, I love, I love all kinds of bloggers. I love reading your blog. I love reading uh, Daring Fireball. I love Sean Blanc, you know, and many more. Um, but it occurred to me that a lot of the people who were writing uh, stuff were may, maybe had a background in software design or, um, you know, web design, um, whereas I had this background in the humanities. And, I mean, I, I studied comparative literature as an undergrad and then creative writing, in grad school. And I thought that I had kind of a different take on some of this stuff. And so I thought maybe I could write about it um, from my point of view and also combine some of these ideas about anxiety with technology. Um, Because I think that we both, I mean, as I've said, I found Um, technology to be something that helped reduce my anxiety, Uh, but a lot of people also feel anxiety about technology and like, what is technology doing to us? Is it making us more distracted? Is it making us stupider? Is it making us disconnected from each other? And some of those ideas are worth thinking about, and I don't, uh, I have kind of different points of view on them. And so I started the blog kind of as a way to get some of those ideas out of my head and, uh, and it took a, a few months, but people started to take some notice and now I have uh not a huge audience, but a decent audience. And uh so it's been great.
0: Does uh does having an audience cause anxiety?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. It actually does. I found um so what happened to me over uh back in December was I had I'd maybe had, you know, a few hundred hits on my blog total over the course of a few months. And then uh, I wrote this piece about um, headphones and how I had this experience uh, where I got into fancy headphones uh, uh, years ago, and then kind of felt this obsession with headphones and getting better and better headphones, and then eventually kind of gave up and sold all my headphones. And so I wrote a piece about this, and for some reason, it touched a nerve. And uh, Jason Kotke linked to it um, on Kotke.org and i suddenly had 12,000 people come to my blog in, you know, 12 hours. and and then i was i was like, you know, this is so exciting, but then at every time i wrote another blog post, it was like is this going to happen again? and if it's not going to happen again, why is it not happening? and i felt this weird stress like uh i have to i have to keep up with this, you know, like i have to uh capitalize on this somehow. And I eventually realized after maybe a month of stressing out about it that I just need to go back to my original mindset, which is I'm going to write thoughtful things about what I think is interesting. And if people, if I continue to write well, people will continue to enjoy that. And uh, I don't need to worry so much about whether I'm writing the right kind of thing or the kind of thing that people are going to Uh, Link to, I just need to make sure that I'm writing interesting things.
0: That's what I like about personal blogs versus writing for larger blogs is the feeling that you're writing for people who know you and you can be a little more familiar and you can take some things for granted and people, like for me, I, I can take for granted that people understand that it's going to be really nerdy sometimes and I don't have to explain why I am such a nerd. But then a post will get linked by like hacker news or or fireballed or whatever, and and all of a sudden I have this extra audience that doesn't know me and they're reading what I wrote in a familiar voice, as if it was designed to be read from the ground up. And that's where I shoot myself in the foot a lot. But anytime I post on like the unofficial Apple Weblog, for example, uh, or Macworld, like I I find myself – it takes me three times as long to write the piece because I'm fact-checking every sentence. I'm double-checking the voice all the way through it and making sure that no, someone who has never heard of me, someone who has no idea who I am and maybe wouldn't even like me if they met me can still get something out of the article. And that does cause me anxiety.
1: Right. Yeah. I've definitely, I've had that experience because I recently started contributing to the suite setup, um, Sean Blanc site. And, uh, I wrote this, this long, uh, post about, uh, or review of dispatch, the email app. And after I wrote it, uh, not, not very many, but two or three people, um, uh, contacted me on Twitter and said, you know, I bought the app and I was really excited and I'm having a little bit of trouble with it. You know, it's not <laughs> quite and I've, I felt tremendously guilty. Like, oh no, what have I done? You know, I'm I persuaded this person to buy an app or an app and they're not having a hundred percent success with it. And and then I realized I had to, you know, let that go.
0: Right. Because the rest of the people who might have had problems with it did the right thing and contacted the developer and sort of the person <laughs> who wrote about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I won't go into my own frustrations in that area. Sometimes somehow I end up being a uh, tech support for every app I write about, but I've learned to just, uh, put the email address for the developer of any app I write about into a text expander snippet, and then just start respo- responding to emails with please contact. I see you listened to Sabado when you were 18. I did. Yes. I used to love Sabado. I can't even remember a song they did right now, but,
1: uh, It's been that long. (laughs) I was really into lo-fi indie rock in the 90s. I wasn't, but
0: uh, Sebado is like the only lo-fi that I listened to. I guess super chunk, if you
1: consider that lo-fi. I would, yeah. They didn't use 4-Track, yeah. Breeders, I'm looking
0: through your sifting lo-fi memories post right now. Yes. That's why I bring it up. We have a different taste in music, but they, they overlap in quite a few areas. I don't know what you're into these days, but...
1: Oh, you know, it's interesting. My my music listening uh, has kind of forked into different directions because um, I have the music that I listen to when I work, which <laughs> late, yeah, lately I can only listen to music that's instrumental when I'm working. And so I listen to a lot of uh, kind of... Uh, I don't know what the, what the terminology is like IDM, like intelligent dance music, I guess is what it used to be called, but just sort of, um, I don't know if you know bands like, uh, Fortet.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love that kind of stuff when I'm working just kind of hypnotic, but has a beat, um, not pure ambient, uh, it just kind of keeps me moving and puts me in a mind state. Uh, and then when I, uh, you know, one, I have music in the house like around the kids. Uh I mean it's just kind of a mixture of everything I listen to, you know, going back for years from REM to pavement to uh more recent stuff like uh I don't know, L C D sound system. My son loves L C D sound system.
0: See, I think I have four modes. I have like uh when I'm calm and I'm working. I listen to, like, uh, Melt Banana and Atari Teenage Riot. Things that are just so noisy that <laughs> they, uh, they become white noise. Yeah. When I'm already stressed out and I'm already anxious, that's when I listen to Trip Hop. And occasionally, uh, I guess, IDM, as you put it. <laughs> Things not just mindless techno. Uh, i bordering on dubstep. But then when I'm not working, I have classic mode where I'll listen to the stuff that I grew up with. Right. And then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go on alternate binges where it's nothing but new music. And I'll go through like all the discovery channels and, uh, put together playlists of things I've never heard before, mm-hmm. but they're two distinct moods. I don't mix the sex pistols with say, uh, where I just, uh, Khalib, what is this band's name? H- H- hani El Khalib, mm. Katib. I've never heard anyone actually say it. I just know that it's uh, it's Katib, Hani El Katib. The just, the things that I discover when I'm flipping through Spotify's radio, right. those are definitely definitely two distinct moods for me. Yeah. Well, do you and- find do you find that
1: music discovery is uh, is fun for you? You know, it's interesting. Um, I I've never gotten into the streaming services like Spotify or RDO or Beats the Beats Music. Um, I've tried each of them like once or twice, and I find that they don't work for me because I'm such a control freak about my music. Um, I want to. It's not so much about owning the music as being able to very finely calibrate what. I'm going to be listening to which See, is that, that's
0: the thing about Spotify though it's a very playlist
1: oriented you yeah. can use discovery
0: but it's not Pandora uh-huh. it's not like it tells you what's next all of the music that I listen to in Spotify is very uh based on hand constructed playlists I just have the entire music collection of the world at my fingertips but does it
1: have the equivalent of like smart playlists
0: uh not so much yeah because I but smart playlists don't seem like the kind of control you're talking about Smart playlists are still, I suppose it's sourcing from your own pool of music though.
1: Right. So yeah, what what smart playlists, I mean, smart playlists in some way were the gateway drug that led me into caring about software in the first place. And I mean, they're they're what caused me to buy an iPod. And then they are what caused me to buy a Mac. And then <laughs> they are what caused me to think that you know, learning how to use things like OmniFocus or Text Expander or Keyboard Maestro. I mean, I feel like it all flowed from Smart Playlists um, because it, I my understanding is that it's a very, I mean, it's kind of a simple version of programming or like a very hand held version of programming where I can uh, it's, say it's a logic ladder. Exactly. You know, uh, sh- I want only songs from the two thousands that I've rated four stars or higher that include the word, you know, include the comment chill, you know, I love being able to create something like that and then have it be random, but also finally like from a very small group of things to be, I don't know. I just like that. No, that makes sense. I get it. I I just, uh,
0: I like to hear new music more often than, uh, I guess the mood to uh, hear new music strikes me more often than the mood to hear
1: my, classic. Right. My own version of classics. Well, and, and, and I'm, I'm sort of blessed by, I, I live in a city where the public libraries are incredibly good, and they get incredibly good music selection. And so I get a lot of my music from the public library. But you have to leave your house for that.
0: <laughs>
1: I guess that's true.
0: You laugh as if uh, you don't mind leaving the house. So I guess you're uh, less of a hermit <laughs> than I am. So, I feel like we're in a pretty good place right now to jump into the top three picks.
1: that sounds fine
0: uh based on yeah, Especially... your first two picks, I think will fit right. nicely right so why don't you go ahead with your first pick
1: okay so uh as i said i'm I am sort of obsessive about smart playlists, and one of the things that I found after I quit my job was I wanted to get into shape because uh i've you know been a a jogger on and off throughout my life. But when I was working at that job that I hated, I basically had no time to exercise and I was out of shape. So uh, I found that jogging was more uh, enjoyable to me if I had exactly the right music to jog to. So in order to find exactly the right music to jog to, it had to be uh, the exact right tempo. And I, uh, at the time, there was a different app that I used that I think it was freeware. But more recently, um, I've discovered this app uh, on uh, the Mac App Store called Cadence BPM Tapper. And what this app allows you to do is to listen to the uh, songs in your iTunes uh, library and you t- just tap along to the beat Uh, on your mouse or your trackpad and it will figure out from your tapping what the beats per minute are and then you can send that information to iTunes so it gets uh, added to the metadata and once you have done this with enough tracks what you can start doing is creating playlists of just songs that are exactly the right tempo uh, for you to jog to and so I've gone through pretty much every track in my Library that I could imagine jogging to, and figured out whether it is the right tempo. And then it also, what it also allows you to do, and this is where I become uh, incredibly nerdy, is create playlists where, uh, like, I can have a a kind of a faster song that kind of pushes me a little bit, and then a slower song that gives me a bit of a rest, and then another fast song, and I can create a whole different kind of uh, jogging roller coaster of tempos and speeds, which I find. Kind of adds to the enjoyment of the uh, the exercise.
0: Have you tried? Uh, was it Beatunes that you were using before?
1: I don't remember what it was.
0: Because like Beatunes and and there's another one called BPMer uh, yeah. that will do it. That will automatically detect based on the sound waves in the files. Have you tried no, that?
1: I've not, but I'm wary of that because part of what I like about uh, Cadence BPM Tapper is that I might tap to a different beat than somebody else might tap to, right? Sure. Like if you listen to a song, there's kind of the downbeats and then there's the hi hat maybe. Right. And well, and
0: sometimes know, those programs will say this is 120 BPM when it's actually 60.
1: Exactly. Because it's it's peaking, it's catching the peaks at double rate. Exactly. Yeah. So I I mean I've figured out that um the the beat that I jog to is between one hundred and sixty and one hundred and ninety beats per minute, and uh, so and some of those songs sound slow, and some of those songs sure. sound fast, but it's just what I tap to. So nice. And then
0: on on your iPhone or iPod, uh, there are apps that will detect your cadence and adjust your playlist based on that. Have you tried any of those? No, I am um, trying to remember. I've used two of them. I think one of them actually was called Cadence pretty sure of it um i'll have to look it up but uh they detect your steps using the accelerometer mm-hmm. and um and then it'll automatically source songs from your playlist that have this bpm data yeah there's one called cadence i don't know if it's from the same people that make bpm tapper quite possibly interesting but yeah you, you might want to try it because then you can like as you ramp up It'll, it'll give you like an eight-second fade from, huh. from your like 80 BPM to your 90 to your 120. Um, and it'll just keep up with you. And you can tell it what playlist to source from. So you can kind of fine-tune it, but have it automatically work for you instead of working for it. Oh, that's interesting. I will try that. Cool. All right. <laughs> My first pick is... Uh, Mistobox, which is a frequently mentioned uh, um, uh, website among coffee aficionados, but they have a series of brewing guides for every uh, one of the kind of artisanal coffee brewing um, systems like the Aeropress or the Chemex, et cetera. And uh, basically, they offer one recipe per device, but it's, you know, supposedly – the best recipe. Um, But when you uh, first get like a Chemex coffee maker, it's really nice to have a video and a guide that says, this is how you get the most out of it. And then you can get creative once you know the basics. But for anyone who's, you know, buying their first AeroPress or their first Chemex, or maybe has owned a Chemex for a while and always wondered why it's not as good as Mr. says it is. (laughs) <laughs> These mistill box guides are pretty awesome.
1: Hmm. Are you a coffee guy? I, You know what's funny? I drink coffee from an AeroPress, but I don't buy fancy coffee. I just buy Folgers, <laughs> and then I put it through the AeroPress because I find that uh, it tastes fine to me. Um, it, it tastes so much better from the AeroPress than it does from a regular coffee maker that uh, I don't mind the fact that it's crappy coffee. <laughs>
0: Okay. We won't talk about this any further.
1: <laughs> All right, I mean, well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm sure that if I tried, I don't want to know. I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Folgers, Folgers, this conversation <laughs> is over. All right. What's your second pick? Um, so my second pick is also music related. Uh, and along the lines of the smart playlist, because uh, I've long looked for an app uh, for my iPhone that would allow me to create playlists on the fly, uh, really easily. And the one that I found, uh, was something I heard about from Federico Fatici and I believe the, his, his pronunciation of it was, uh, Ecouté, uh, which I think is French. And, uh, it's this app that basically, uh, kind of, you open it up and it mirrors your, your iTunes library, um, on your phone. And, uh, all the same playlists, all the same artists, all the same songs, whatever. And then you have these various filters. So you can you know tap on artists, uh, you can tap on songs, you can tap on playlists, and then you can start creating playlists, uh, a new playlist based on that. And then once you have that new playlist created, you can then very easily drag those files, those songs around, even as you're listening to it, um, you can rearrange uh, that playlist. And the reason I've, I mean, I've tried a bunch of apps like this in the past and they've always fallen down in a couple of different categories. And one of those is, um, I, because I like spark playlists, I like to have say a playlist of just like my five-star songs, for instance, or five-star songs that I haven't listened to in the last month. And what, uh, what I like to be able to do is to then grab that playlist and, you know, shuffle it Um, and then once I have it shuffled to look at it and then kind of pull songs around or rearrange songs to the, to the order that I want. Um, and most of the other apps don't, uh, don't let you do that. And, but the second thing is most other apps don't actually play the song, uh, in iTunes. Uh, or I, I, I'm not actually sure how this works, but they for example, when you play a song uh, with the music app on your iPhone, it gets, you know, a uh, uh, play count added to it or right. it gets the like date played, whatever. And I don't know how, how Ecoute does this, but it, it, it adds those things, even though you're playing it through Ecoute and not through the music app. Um, so when I'm done listening to that playlist and I plug my phone back into my computer, it, I get all that metadata added to all those songs so that it will refresh all of those playlists. Um, so I find that it's, in terms of just having control over my music, it's the, the best I've found.
0: That's, yeah, I, I actually own Ecute. Um Really, I've loved it for a long time. It's, it's especially gorgeous on the, uh, on the Mac. Uh, it looks really good on iOS, too, but... Um... But yeah, I I guess I've never really I've been using Vox lately, uh-huh. and I love Vox, um, but it doesn't do a lot of those things that you're talking about. That would if they were if they were important to me, Equate would be a clear winner in like in integration with iTunes and things like that.
1: Yeah, there's another app on the iPad called Couch Player, I think. Yeah, um, which does a similar thing, um, but the one thing it doesn't do is if you're listening to a playlist and you shuffle it it doesn't show you how it's shuffled whereas ecoute when you shuffle a playlist you then get to see well what is my what is actually going to be played next now you know right um so things like that i, I maybe i should have been a dj or i was a dj in a past life or something but <laughs> all right I want, I want to be in charge yeah i have that problem but i I've, I've,
0: I've learned over time that uh, forcing my musical taste on other people is a generally bad idea. <laughs> my personal music tastes do not uh, – they rarely go over well. <laughs> not fit for public consumption. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I used to show up at like house parties with a pile of CDs in my backpack and be like, yeah, I'll take over now. And after everyone looks at me in horror for like 20 minutes, I'm like, no, you can go back to your you know, radio station, whatever you had. Um. All right. My second pick is actually not far off here. It's, uh, it's called Minitube, and it lets you do a search, and you can refine with search criteria, and much like uh, Smart Playlist, uh, but for YouTube. And it will c- give you a continuous stream of YouTube videos, uh, which, if you are like me and you tend to go down the related video rabbit hole on occasion... <laughs> um this automates that and completely enables you to get lost in just random not entirely random but curated to an extent uh youtube videos uh just just one after another and you can refine the search as you go and say no i need to exclude you know this type of uh what are those when you when you start going down pop music videos and they start including related videos that are crazy people trying to show you how every pop star is a devil worshiper. <laughs> Have you ever seen these videos? No. They're insane. They'll like back mask and then re-back mask and, and, uh, the lyrics and then be like, did you hear that? Did you hear that? They said Hail Satan. But it'll be like a uh, uh, Katy Perry song, and it's just ridiculous. But That's hilarious. It is hilarious. And then I find myself going down those rabbit holes, and I wish I hadn't after I get through seven or eight, like how David Bowie, you know, well sacrifices children things like that uh, I just I wish I had my hour back but see <laughs> there's another there's another app called Play plus for Mac uh-huh. that is also uh-huh. really great for as like a YouTube interface but the difference here is the uh the constant the the playlist where you can actually create like a stream of videos to play one after another instead of just having an interface for the website and that's what I like about minitube.
1: Hmm. so there see, I feel like there needs to be i mean devour is kind of a a, a video uh curator right from yeah. youtube um but I feel like there needs to be more stuff like that where based on whatever niche uh type of video you like to watch like they they would find you the best videos of you know blank or the best uh i don't know like. Maybe maybe YouTube already tries to do that, and I just don't use it enough to know. But um, I often feel like there's people find these great videos, but I wish there was a place where I could go where it was just great videos based on categories.
0: Yeah, yeah, and well, I mean, Vivo, I think I think it was Vivo I was on. I was impressed with their categorization, but you're still dealing with users adding their own metadata, right? So you don't. It's not a curated list.
1: But
0: yeah. Anyway, tell mm. me
1: tell me about your third pick. Okay, so uh, I've heard I for a long time I had heard a lot of people um, praising the uh, Logitech Easy Switch keyboard as uh, one of the best wireless keyboards uh, for the iPad because it, it well and I guess for other devices as well because what it uh, I mean you're familiar with it I think people have talked about it on your show before yeah it Is was your pick one time yeah. Yeah, because um, you can easy easily switch, hence the name, uh, between different devices, and it's an illuminated keyboard. And my, I, in my opinion, the best feature of it is that uh, you can switch it on and off. So unlike the Apple Bluetooth keyboard, you're never unsure about whether or not it's on, right? So I wanted to try that, but I had an origami workstation, which I think has maybe also been a pick on your show. I don't know. But Sean Blanc recently wrote about it for The Suite Setup as his favorite um, keyboard solution for the iPad because it allows you to uh, prop up the iPad and use the keyboard at the same time in this nice uh, folding sort of contraption. The problem is that I wanted to use both. I wanted to use the Origami Workstation and the, uh, the Logitech Easy Switch, but you technically can't because the Origami Workstation is designed to have the Apple Bluetooth keyboard snap into it. It has this piece of plastic that's designed for the, uh, the Apple Bluetooth keyboard to snap right into it. And so I decided that I was going to throw caution to the wind and uh, I got a knife and I cut that piece of plastic off of the origami workstation. And I bought myself some industrial strength Velcro. And I uh, put Velcro on the bottom of the uh, the origami workstation and the bottom of the uh, easy switch keyboard. And I think it is the best keyboard uh, combination that I've I could imagine for the iPad. And so my pick is uh, industrial strength Velcro, which not only solves solved this problem for me, but also I've since used it for other things like sticking my iPhone to my card dashboard and, uh, and other uh, things like that. So I highly re- recommend using Velcro whenever possible.
0: Velcro fell out of favor for a while in like this early decade. Uh, But it seems to be making a comeback, judging by, like, if you walk around DSW for a while, the number of Velcro shoes that are now available. Mm. It seems like people finally realize, you know, this hook and pile thing is actually a really good idea. (laughs) It does wear out. Have you you had problems with the the pile part wearing out?
1: Um, In the past, uh, I've I've noticed that. And actually, what I found was the... um the origami workstation that I had, the Velcro had started to wear out. And so I replaced pretty much all of it. I just took that same knife and I cut all the Velcro off of it and I put all new Velcro on, um, and it's working great. But I I assume, you know, it might eventually wear out and then I'll just replace it again. That is some some serious serious accessory hacking hacking you're doing doing there. there. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) I like it. I like it. So it's three top picks, picks, but your ultimate ultimate pick is is, uh, Velcro. Velcro.
0: Yes, industrial strength. Industrial strength. Velcro. grow. Exactly. Nice. All right. Well, my last pick. Right. Well, my last pick nerdy. is pretty nerdy. It's it's, it's called, called context. context, and it's for Mac, and it's a, it's a window switcher that offers you four different ways to quickly switch between not just applications but windows. Uh, first, you get like a, a hovering dock at the edge of your screen, and you can uh, click on any window to jump directly to it. Uh, but you also get a replacement for command tab, uh, like the regular application switcher, that lets you uh, switch between any applications and any windows of each application. And uh, you can also uh, use numbers to immediately jump to like your first nine open apps, and then you can use two digit numbers and it groups all the applications and windows together into different uh, different sections, each with uh, like two or a three or a four prefix. Um, and then you can also type, uh, type ahead search. So you bring up the, the switcher and you just start typing the name of a window or an application and it will select that and you hit enter and switch directly to it. And it's way faster than uh command tab, 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 and command shift tab to get between applications. That sounds awesome.
1: It is pretty cool. Um, I've been, I've been playing with which, uh, uh, yeah, uh, which, is oh, another, which is another great one. Great one. I love Instead Witch. Of command tab. Yeah. But that I, I like the the sound of sound of that. What I have found, uh, I mean, this kind of ties back into software and anxiety. But I, I think one of the main reasons that I've found software so amazing um, over the past several years is because it's taught me how to uh, it's it's taught me how to do things with it that I, like I'm the one creating that thing. Um, I mean to give like simple examples like smart playlists or a snippet in a uh, text expander or my own keyboard, uh, macro with keyboard maestro. I mean, these apps that allow you to, I mean, kind of do simple programming tasks, um, for a non-programmer, it just feels, I mean, I've, for so long, I felt like computers were this sort of mysterious thing that I had to use for my job and to feel like I can kind of write my own software with some of these apps, or something like Hazel, it just it makes computers feel so much more approachable and powerful. I mean, it feels like you have a superpower. Um, and a lot of those apps are not possible through the Mac App Store because of sandboxing. And I just think that that creates a kind of user who, instead of being enabled to kind of influence what they can do, they just have to do what the apps will let them do. Right. And that was the the big concern
0: when sandboxing was first introduced. Okay, so uh, our second sponsor today is HostGator, uh, offering Linux VPS hosting that can be customized to match your needs and upgraded at any time. Fully managed with 24-7 support year-round, they offer one-click install of whatever compatible software you need, and the servers are scalable, so adding new resources is easy. Visit HostGator.com and use the code Dan sent me for a whopping fifty percent off of all VPS hosting. All right, so you can be found on Twitter at Rob McMyers, the M Y E R S, and uh, and at your blog, which is by the way an excellent blog. Everyone should read it. Oh, thank you. And that is at uh, AnxiousMachine.com. Is there anywhere else you'd like people to? Uh, I'll link a couple of your reviews from the suite setup. Okay. Is there anywhere else you want to mention? Nope, that's it. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah. I feel less anxious now.
1: (laughs) Well, I realize I forgot to ask you if you have been feeling much anxiety since you quit your job.
0: I would say more uh, fear. I guess fear is the same thing as anxiety. Yeah. Um, And not, not so much, though partly it's balanced out by the fact that my schedule is so relaxed right now i can do whatever i want to yeah my moments of anxiety are washed washed out uh by this relaxing schedule i won't say my pace is relaxing but my uh my structure and schedule is very it just flows and that alleviates a lot of the anxiety I might drown, but I can just float along doing what I do until i take in too much
1: water. Well, I found that the, the best antidote for anxiety for me is doing creative things that I care about. And, and that's that, like all I do. There you go. <laughs> nice. All right. All right. I am Brett
0: Terpstra. I'm at uh, TT scoff everywhere. And you can find me at BrettTerpstra.com. Feel free to leave feedback through the five by five contact form And, of course, the audio drop is still open uh, at bretturpshire.com slash audio drop. And you can leave a two to five minute uh, introduction of yourself and uh, kind of an audition for Systematic. So that's uh, episode 95 with Rob McGinley Myers. Thanks again, Rob. Thank you. And we'll see everybody in a week. Thanks for listening.